You are now listening to the October 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, listeners. This is Nicole leading Let's Read the Bible program. How do you respond when someone gives you advice? Often, hearing advice from someone else can make us feel uneasy, even if they are trying to give it to us out of love or to help us. We may become defensive and feel like they are attacking us, even if we know that deep down they are trying to help. What are the basic reasons for this kind of reaction? This reaction may be due to our own pride and arrogance. We may think that our thoughts and decisions are always right and be reluctant to accept feedback or correction, even when we know that we are wrong. In Proverbs chapter 3, we are reminded not to rely on our own understanding, but to acknowledge God in all things. One's own understanding means one's knowledge and discernment. Most of us do not doubt about what we think is right because we think and judge things around ourselves. However, the Bible warns us that self-centered thought is dangerous. Instead, we should acknowledge God in all things. Acknowledging God means knowing Him and experiencing Him, not just intellectually, but in our daily lives. It means seeking His guidance and wisdom, even when it goes against our own thought and plans. When we do that, God will lead us to His way. During this process, God may discipline us or correct us, like a loving father who wants his child to grow upright. That is, God's discipline comes out of His love for us. It is important to remember that God's thoughts and plans are always better than ours, and that obedience to Him is the best path we can take. Do you acknowledge God's wisdom and plans as superior to your own? If so, then living in obedience to His will is the best way to go. If we do not follow His path, God may discipline us, not out of anger, but out of love, to help us grow and become better. Let us put aside our arrogance and unpleasant feelings about the punishment and scolding. Let us give thanks to God who still loves us and let us hope to become people who return to the right path. Let's read Proverbs chapter 3 Verses 1 to 35 My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul. An adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked. When it comes, the Lord will be your confidence. And will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, "Go and come again; tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you." Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason. When he has done you no harm, do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my 
Your 
worship your holy name. Lord, I worship your holy Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is looking over the crowd. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. All right, who are you? Who are you? We never talk to people that way. I never say, who are you, right? Good morning. I mean, maybe I say, who are you? Nobody says, who are you, right? Do you? No, we don't say that seems kind of rude, but I'm going to ask you, who are you? Um, You'll see why I'm asking that question in a minute. I want you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus had become famous due to his last and final miracle when he raised Lazarus from the dead. An amazing wonder Lazarus had been dead for four days. All the friends, community had gathered together in mourning uh, to be around Mary and Martha. The whole town, I'm sure, was in mourning. And Jesus had been asked to come earlier because everybody knew he could heal Lazarus. And Jesus purposefully didn't show up on time. So it's four days later. Just so you know, the Jewish... Um, idea at the time still is, is that the soul lingers around the body for three days, and after the fourth day, the soul is gone. So in order for everyone to know that Lazarus is really dead, Jesus waited the four days, and he came, and you know the story, I I would love to tell it, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and we come to just what John chapter 12, 17 says, The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So this whole crowd that was there, one of the reasons why there is so big a crowd is those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead had told others who had told others. And so this huge crowd is gathering. So it's interesting, significant that Lazarus' resurrection had this kind of effect. Hundreds of thousands of people had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, which it was required, you're obligated as an adult male to pilgrimage, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem if it was possible. So the city doubled in size, and many people were just camping all over the outskirts of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives and all over. People were there as the Lord had commanded them to be. So 
Again, there is this huge crowd. God so knows when to make things happen. He knows when to use the right time, the right place. He knows how to make a crowd, doesn't he? He does. He knows how to stir things up so that just at the right time, Jesus' name will be glorified. And you know, I think we're living in a time right, right now where things are happening, that God is stirring up things, and at the right time, and I believe it's not going to be far from now, the name of Jesus is going to be magnified, and there are going to be crowds coming to Jesus Christ. I really believe the Lord has that coming down the line. Be ready for what the Lord will do. Be ready to be made uncomfortable. Be ready for someone to take your chair, for someone to sit next to you that doesn't smell like you, or look like you, or think like you. Or someone who comes in and they're a couple, a guy and a guy, or a gal and a gal. They're coming in. Be ready. Have the love of Christ all over you. Inside you can be going, ah, but outside. (laughs) The love of Christ, amen? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been praying for. Why would God give us power? Yes, to love and serve him, but it's also for evangelism. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my what? Witnesses. Look at Matthew 21.1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent to his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So if anybody asks anything to you, you shall say, well, the Lord needs them. So Jesus already arranged all of this with the guy, and so if the guy comes, he wants to make sure that, you know, Jesus is getting this donkey and not somebody else. So if they ask him who you are, just say, hey, the Lord needs him. He'll send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, read with me, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Actually, the prophecy now is from Zechariah 9.9. And it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly. Your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. And so this is what's coming to mind. Matthew doesn't quote it exactly that way. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the people spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. You know what Hosanna means? In Hebrew, it means save now. Say Hosanna. Hosanna. Okay, that's, that's okay, but I know second service will do it better. Okay, so I don't want to say you were weak. I do report on you guys to second service. So you got to be the model. Come on. That's amazing. Now, how many of you heard that? <laughs> Can you imagine now 
people, the crowd sounding like that, only it's over and over and over. I want us to say Hosanna like that three times. So right now, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Is that awesome? Is that awesome? Yes, it's awesome. So this is the crowd. Can you imagine being in that crowd now? Yes, you can imagine that. And so as Jesus passes, what I want you to do is I'm going to ask you to do something kind of different, okay? I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself being there in this story. So you've heard the sounds, right? The sounds. Can you imagine being there in the story? You have an imagination, so one of the ways you really get into the Bible text is you, you look at the context. You look at really being there. That's what I think about when I read something. If I was there, who's just talking? Well, I'm there. Listen to the voices of the people. They're shouting. It's hard to hear. It's hard to talk to one another because of the shouting and people uh, uh, declaring that scripture over and over. Maybe you're squinting your eyes because the sun is so bright. You know, Passover incurs just the same time as it does here. And we're, we're on the, the same um, uh, latitude as, uh, as, as Jerusalem, as Israel. So uh, the weather here is much like there. So the sun is bright and you don't have sunscreen. And maybe you're starting to feel a little, you know, burn on the back of your neck. And, and you smell yourself. <laughs> And you smell all these sweaty people around you. And, and, and so I visualize people trying to push in front of me. to get, you know, right in front so they can see Jesus. And, and they've got palm branches in their hands, some of them. And I, I can imagine somebody pulling it through and they brush across me and they, they scratch my face. Can you imagine that? You ever dealt with a palm branch? They can, you can cut yourself on these crazy things, right? They got pokies on them. I can visualize people uh, uh, kicking up the dust and, you know, it's not paved. And so I get some dust. I might be coughing a little bit and you're covered, you're covered with dust and something gets in your eye. Can you imagine all of this? And then you decide, I'm going to take a palm branch in my hand. Somebody then steps on my foot. You know, all of this. But listen, as Jesus passes by, you smell something which seems totally out of context. Something that seems so random and out of place. It's a smell of a very, very expensive perfume. You see, Jesus had been anointed, and that fragrance of that perfume was with him as he, at wherever he went. Even in his trial, even on the cross, there was this fragrance and so you see this as, as Jesus is going by. And then you look around. You look around you, and who do you see? I mean, if you could get up a little higher, you could look at the crowd. Who do you see? Well, there are people standing on the edge of the crowd. You notice them, and, and they're watching. They're not engaged like we are. They're not. They're just kind of watching. Maybe, maybe like this, huh? Just not exactly sure. They, they seem curious. They're taking it all in, but they're not exactly sure what it means. Some of them look skeptical even. Why should I believe this man from Nazareth is my king? Kind of seeing him. If he were the king of the Jews, weren't the religious leaders somehow acknowledge him? Um, They're skeptics today. 
on April 1st, 2023, it's a fresh study, came out reporting that 25% of Americans are skeptical about Christianity. Now, this is a big deal because the number has gone way up in just 10 years, way up. Listen to what it says. There are three barriers keeping skeptics from a holistic belief in Jesus. First and foremost, skeptics have difficulty reconciling faith and science. But faith and science, creation versus evolution, how does this all fit together? They require proof before they can believe. Secondly, many skeptics believe in the historical Jesus and respect and even revere the spirituality and values he lived and preached. However, they cannot accept Jesus' claims of divinity and the other supernatural elements of his existence, the virgin birth and descendants from God, his bodily resurrection, and his ascendance in heaven. Lastly, most skeptics have no experiential relationship to prayer. When Christians talk about the power of prayer, skeptics have no real connection to anyone or anything on the other end, believing that their words, no matter how earnest, remain unheard. In addition, skeptics have a deep-seated instincts when it comes to responding to Christians or to the church, either because of their lack of exposure to the church or their own negative experiences with Christians. Often, they believe the best Christians are those who keep their opinions and practices to themselves. Now, if you're a skeptic, I'm glad I just heard from you because I'm hearing these things and we hear what's important and we can't write anybody off. You can't write 25% of the population off and say, ah, whatever, because that number is going to grow unless God turns this country around. That number is going to grow and grow. And so we have got to be, I'm going to use the term armed, to answer the skeptics' questions and to involve them in, in relationship. I mean, I'm just seeing if they saw their prayer answered, you know, if they're praying for something and they're praying for, for somebody's healing and God miraculously heals that people or God does something that, that just shouldn't happen. I mean, maybe he's not undoing the natural laws, but God does something at the right time again, at the right place in response to a prayer. You know what? That's going to have a huge impact and maybe it's going to open the door for somebody to say, you know what? These are Jesus' claims and Jesus loves you so much he hears your prayers. You don't have to remember all of this. We've got all the resources we need. You go online. You can find major Christian ministries. If somebody has a question and, and you don't uh, say, you know what, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you say, oh, I, I can, uh, I'll get some information about that uh, because I know there's evidence. I, I know that we can reconcile this. Let me, let me, get, let me put together some stuff. But always have a good attitude. You know, there are two kinds of skeptics. One are open-minded, the other hostile. Well, we can't do much about hostile skeptics. You know, that's not my job. But when it comes to an open-minded, skeptical person who's on the edge of the crowd, man, there's a lot we can do, isn't there? If it's nothing other than being nice, thinking of them not just as, as those people 
but potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving them like that. And living our our life together so, hey, if somebody skeptical does look in at the church, they're going to say, wow, look at that love they have. Look at how they take care of one another. Look at how they take care of the homeless. Look at how they love one another. Man, when I go in there, I went in there that time and I just felt something I did not expect. Again, the power of the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit is with people drawing them to Jesus, right? We pray, God, make us part of that with experience for people. Use me. Use you. Use our church to be part of with someone drawing them to Christ. Amen? So there are skeptics who are open to believing, skeptics who their minds are closed. I can't focus on that personally. I'm here to use my life to reach as many open-minded people as I can. Rusty Wright is on spot when he says, hurting people everywhere need God. Many are open to considering him but they often have questions they want answered before they are willing to accept Christ. As Christian communicators seek to blend grace with truth, an increasing numbers of skeptics may give an ear and become seekers or believers. Truth and grace, grace and truth. So I scan the crowd and I see people who are watching. They're up there on the fringes. But then as you're looking at the crowd, we can see people who are hating. You can see the haters. Who are they? Well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated Jesus. Not all of them. Now, some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus when Lazarus was resurrected. And so here is Jesus who raises Lazarus from the dead. What do they say? All they can do is kill him. He doesn't believe what I believe. Kill him. In face of this evidence, they were so entrenched, the Pharisees and Sadducees, in their belief that Jesus was a false teacher and nothing would move them from this position. Not even Jesus' resurrection. They were still trying to bribe soldiers. Remember, they're still trying to hush-hush everything and make up a story that Jesus hadn't raised from the dead when it was obvious that he had done what he said he would do. So when news of Lazarus' resurrection reached the ears of the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were determined to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Do you know they wanted to kill Lazarus too? They hated Jesus' ministry. They hate him. Why did they hate his ministry? Well, They hated the power he commanded. Command winds, storms to stop. He healed people. He healed blind eyes. I mean, all these miracles. Cast out demons. Could not explain. Didn't want to give God the glory for it. They hated the sinners he ministered to. He hated his disciples' lack of reverence for rituals. He hated Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Oh my, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. God forbid. And when he healed a man on the Sabbath, listen, Matthew 12 says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And they were appalled by Jesus' claim that he was the I am. Remember, Jesus said, 
to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus went and hid in the temple. It wasn't time for him to die yet. They grumble. The whole world has gone after him, and they needed to do something to stop Jesus. So as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, they came up to him and insisted, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He's the king of David. You know, they're shouting, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I see people watching on the edge. It mixed inside, you can see haters. But I also see some people in the crowd. You can see by their face that they are hoping that Jesus would be the one. They're excited, they're shouting, and in their heart of hearts, they're just hoping. Could he be there hoping Jesus, the Messiah? Every generation longed for the Messiah to come in their day. Here's the back story. Every Jew knew the way Jesus was entering Jerusalem was a triumphant procession worthy of a king or a conqueror. Every new Jew, every Jew knew, and every new Jew knew <laughs> that this is what this meant. This is only what you do for a king. I mean, in the Old Testament, uh, King Jehu, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they, uh, people took off their robes and put them in front of him. There's this, this is a kingly procession. This is how conquerors entered. They came back victorious. In fact, King Solomon rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, something like this. So they understood that Jesus was riding in state. You understand when I say into Jerusalem? And they're waving their palm branches, which is a national symbol like us in a parade. Hosanna, save now, save now, save now. The nation was more than ready for Messiah. They believed the Messiah would liberate Jerusalem and push the Romans out of Israel and they would be free. They were hoping Jesus would be their national deliverer. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they remember that, that the Messiah, when he actually came, would fulfill an ancient prophecy. Way, way, thousands of years old, this promise was given back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And it said, the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's the king being a king, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the one of the one, the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all the nations will honor. So here's this prophecy of the Messiah who would come from the tribe of Judah, who would be the king in all the nations. So Jesus, we're hoping you're the one, hoping the Messiah that would deliver us. Of course, there are Dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah establishing an everlasting kingdom. Psalm 2, for instance, talks about the Son of God making, forcing the nations to be obedient to him. And if they aren't, he smashes them like you would smash a, a pot. And yes, these are all over the Old Testament. And so I can understand how they're expecting the Messiah to do this. But they overlooked the other prophecies 
that say the Messiah would suffer and he would die and he would give his life and all of this. And it's like, well, let's forget those because we want to read these. Some people read the Bible that way, don't they? You know, well, I want to see what I see. I don't want to see what it, all, it says all together. They just see the Messiah coming and the victorious king of the Messiah and they don't realize what's happening in between. So it was. They're hoping. So I've got these people who are watching. We see these people who are hating. We see these people who are hoping. But if you continue to look around the crowd, you're going to see people who seem different from everybody else, different from the watchers and the haters and the hopers. (laughs) These are people who are believers. They're believers. They're Jesus' disciples, not just the 12, but they're men and women who follow Jesus. It's not easy to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It was 70 years ago, 60 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, but it is not easy to be a disciple of Jesus now. All sorts of misunderstandings, persecution, prejudice, the things happening very quickly in a matter of years that we're saying, what, how could this happen? And, and now we're, we're, we're on the, like, we're the bad guys. And again, it's easier for us to get in this defensive position. We get down into our bunkers. You know, we have to be able to defend ourselves righteously, and we surely can. We have the arguments. We have the truth. We also have to keep open and, oh, wow, this balance. But to follow Jesus is hard. It's harder, it's harder than it's ever been. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. These people were following Jesus. They were believers. They were believing. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Yes, I'm saved by grace. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, but... Look at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself and take his cross once daily and follow me. Taking up a cross. Okay, we understand. You know, we, we think about Jesus' cross, how heavy it was, the burden it was, the shame that it carried with it, right? Can you think of all the things? It was going to be a place of, of persecution. I mean, take up your cross. He didn't say, take up my cross, lift high my cross before the world. He says, you're going to be my follower, then you take up your cross, Daily and follow me. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, the son of man, will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of his father and of his holy angels. Following Jesus, hey, it's hard. Who told you it wasn't? It's hard to be a Christian. But we don't have to live in our own power. Amen? Amen. We have the Holy Spirit's power. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we, in the name of Jesus Christ, can do hard things. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, when it's necessary, you will stand for what is right. I mean, some days it just seems very light. Other times it's heavy. But you know, God doesn't give me tomorrow's strength. I don't need it right now, correct? That yesterday's strength is gone. So he gives me strength for the moment. His mercies are new. I want you to look at John chapter 8 and look at verse 12. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You are followers of Jesus. You're no longer in the dark. You have the light of life. The word of God is a light unto our path. The light is growing brighter and brighter as the Lord is returning. For us, the world is getting darker and darker, but that means what we have is just shining brighter and brighter, amen? I mean, for us, things aren't getting darker in a way because, hey, we're living in the light. We're following Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. We say I'm a Christian, but in a way that that term is kind of messed up, isn't it? Because everybody's a Christian. I mean, not everybody, but I mean, you got Christians who don't believe in basic Bible truth. We're Christians. Their churches are in apostasy. We're Christians. And then you have believers who are filled with the Spirit, who are following Jesus Christ. We're Christians. I'm a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to change the terminology, but do you understand what I'm saying? When I say I'm a follower of Jesus, that says something intently to me. It it means I am following Jesus with intent. I'm following I'm not observing. I'm following. I'm not sitting. I'm following. Okay, now look at John 10. John chapter 10, verse 27. What do Jesus' sheep do? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and what? They follow me. All right? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. You're true sheep of the Lord, then you'll be following Jesus. If you're not, question mark. Why not? What's going on here? Uh, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And then this wonderful truth to, to you Christ followers, I give them eternal life and they will never, no, never perish forever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You, yes. Awesome words, Lord Jesus. So Jesus says, you follow me, I give you eternal life. See, it's not you're following, so I give you eternal life. Basically, it's you're following me, you're my follower, you have eternal life. And no one can pluck me from the Father's hand. There is nothing, no circumstance, there's no situation, there's no person, not even my own sin, okay? 
can pull me out of the hand of God. Listen, brother, listen, sister. Not even your own sin, not even your shortcomings, not any of that kind of stuff can pull you out of the Father's hand. I mean, he's a dad who loves you, and if you're in a dangerous world and you're running out into the quote-unquote intersections of this world where you could get killed, he, he's not going to let you wiggle out of his hand so you can get run over by some kind of car. He's holding on to you in some way, whether you like it or not. So, looking at this crowd on Palm Sunday, what a crowd. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. We're there. We're hearing it. We're seeing it. We're smelling it. Serving it. Those people on the edge of the crowd, well, they need Jesus. The watchers, those people who are watching, they need Jesus. All those people who are hating Jesus, I don't know. God, have mercy on them. Turn their hearts, if possible. Those who are hoping, hey, we point them to Jesus. We, we get them understanding the gospel of grace. And then there are those of us in the huge crowd, we're believing, yes, this is our Lord, yes. He's going to the cross for us to die for our sins. But Palm Sunday is not the end of the story. It's not all parade into Jerusalem. It's death, it's burial, but then it's glorious resurrection, amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that we have eternal life. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, 
please call us at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I believe we'll see that's the Antichrist, okay? That's the abomination of desolation. That's the son of destruction. Okay, so we see that. So you've got four beasts, with the last one being the worst, ten horns, and another one arising, subduing three horns, and this horn is speaking great boasts. So what happens? Verse 9. This is great. Wherever you got the Antichrist, right next to it you see the defeating of him. And I kept looking until thrones were sent up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white as snow, and his hair and his head was pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels like burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. you got these beasts that have this temporal power for a little while, and Satan's behind them, as we're going to see. These world kingdoms. But here you have who's really on the throne. And myriads and myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain. There you get this first word, the beast, right? And his body was destroyed and given to burning fire. Amen, right? All right. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with the clouds, one like the Son of Man coming. This is what Revelation starts out with, chapter 1. And you go, this is what it's about. It's about Jesus coming, right? You see, you got to remember this. One like the Son of Man coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. There's Christ reigning, right? That all the people's nations, men of every language, might serve him. That's what we should be doing. And it will happen. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Hey, here's all these kingdoms that are going on, one extremely dreadful with this horrible beast. But the Lord is going to take over. He's going to have dominion forever and ever. Don't worry about it, right? But yet Daniel, like maybe you and I, was a little perplexed. He wanted to know what's going on. Look at here. Daniel chapter 7, 16. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. Maybe that's happening to you as we hear all this information, right? He's like, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached the, the, those who were standing by and began asking them the exact meaning of all this. Here you go. Here's some, here's an interpretation. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Here you go. The great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise, arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Amen, right? That's our destiny. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of what? The fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns, 
which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before, and the three of them, which the three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. You can see that in Revelation chapter 13. Until the Ancient of Days came again, he's going to get destroyed, right? Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Most Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Hey, this isn't kingdom now, but it will come, folks. All right? Then he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Here you go. Which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten kings, out of this kingdom, ten kings will rise, out of that earthly kingdom. And another will rise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And so you have a final kingdom, in a sense, with ten kings. Another one arises, which subdues three of those kings, obviously. And as we're going to see, this is the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. This is how he's getting set up. And then notice in verse 25, we have a description of him. And he will speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. We're going to see that in Revelation 13. And he will intend, listen to this, make alterations to times and in law, and they will be given in his hand for a time, times and a half a time. You go to Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 and 13, time, times and a half a time, that's three and a half years. It's very clear. This abomination of desolation is going to be able to do whatever he wants, and he's going to make some major changes. Now you can start to see why these Thessalonians are kind of alarmed. We're going to go through this. They're saying that, no, that Paul said that, didn't he? No, it's false. You're not going to go through this. You're not. And so here, I love how when the character of this person is revealed, right next to it is his imminent destruction. Look at verse 26. But the court will sit in judgment for his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Amen. Then the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms under a whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Amen. At that point, the revelation ended as, For me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, you guys' face is growing pale now. I mean, that's a lot of information, right? But the reality is, understanding the book of Daniel immeasurably helps us understand the book of Revelation. Because the symbolism in Revelation is from, more often than not, the book of Daniel. Indeed, in Revelation 12, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Again, I told you there'd be a lot here, so just hang on there and hope you got your sack lunches. Really, truly, if you understand the outline of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 is Satan introduced in light of Israel and Jesus. Revelation 13 is the beast introduced in the false prophets. Revelation 14 is Christ will overcome them. He will defeat them, as you're going to see. And then we see how it plays out. Okay, so Revelation 12, and I want to read part of this. Now, evidently, in the middle of this seven years, the, the Antichrist makes a deal in the beginning. And he still doesn't have full ultimate power. He's subduing kings. There's things that are going on. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's all kinds of stuff. God is starting to put his wrath out. See that in Revelation. But in the middle... As we see in our passage, and as we see what the Lord Jesus said, he's going to declare himself to be God, and he's going to take full power. 
And we're going to see what is behind that. And that last three and a half years is the great tribulation ending in him being slain, the bad guy, and put in the lake of fire, and Christ coming and establishing his kingdom. So we're going to see what precipitates this guy, this man, all of a sudden having all Satan's power on earth, this Antichrist. Notice what happens. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. That's Satan. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Yes, Satan was cast out, but we see in Job, he comes up before the Lord. He presents himself, so do his angels. They present themselves. Here, he's finally kicked out. This is great. He's kicked out, okay? And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to where? To the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard, and this is great, because if you're a believer, we'll be with the Thessalonians, we'll be in heaven right now while all this bad stuff's happening, and we will be saying this up there. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. You see, before this happens, Satan goes up there and accuses you and I all the time. Look at what Greg did. Look at what he did. He's accuser of the brethren. Look at this. Look at this. But we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. We're covered by his blood. And so now he's thrown down, right? Been thrown down who accuses him before God day and night. And they overcame, that's believers, how those accused, how so? Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony that they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you. This is during the day of the Lord. Okay? Having what? Great wrath knowing that he only has a short time. This is during the tribulation. It's the impetus for the great tribulation the last three and a half years. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child. That's speaking of Christ. And two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. This is when Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place, get out. Don't even grab your stuff. If you're woe to those who are nursing at the time, woe this, if you're not prepared for this, because I told you it's coming, get out and get protected. That's what he's talking about. And so it was given her place where she was nourished for what? A time, times, and a half a time. Sounds familiar. Three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so she might, she might kind of be swept away by with a flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. It's, it's symbolic, but it's happening. It's true. And the dragon was enraged with the women and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those are believers. And you see in chapter 13, he goes to persecute, and he has given authority over them, and many believers are slaughtered during this time. So we have this beast And then look at Revelation 13, okay? This is right the next spot. This is where the beast is introduced, okay? And there's different translations, but I like this translation. Some of them are messed up. The New King James has got some of the things backwards here. Revelation 13, 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up from the sea. 
A beast coming up by the sea. What's the sea? It's Gentiles. I believe the Antichrist is a Gentile, just from this statement. Okay? He's coming up out of the sea. We've seen that term uh, throughout. And it says, notice the description. Having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. Here we have the beast intricately aligned with Satan. You can look at Revelation chapter 12. I don't have time for that. Now, what's the significance of these ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems? Well, the ten horns and ten diadems, those are those ten nations we're going to see. Diadems are kings, right? He's sovereign over that. Turn to Revelation 17. This is the last one I want to share with you about this. Revelation 17. Then we'll get back to 13 for a minute. This explains what's behind this Antichrist. This explains what's going on in the kingdoms and all the stuff that's happening. It's really important. Revelation chapter 17 Verse 1, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, said, Come up here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot. And I believe that's Jerusalem, who sits on many waters, who with the kings of earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the waters. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having what? Seven heads and ten horns. Okay? Keep holding on there. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations of unclean things of her immorality. This is chapter 17. And upon her forehead was written, mystery. Now, it's a mystery. If it's a mystery, then it doesn't mean exactly what it says as you read it. There's a mystery behind it. Just think about that. A mystery. Babylon the great, mother of all harlots, abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And now at this point, we have the description. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Here's the explanation. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Jesus Christ is the one who is and will be and is to come, right? The beast is the opposite. was, he is not, right? And he won't be, okay? And it says here, all who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those are those who are not overcome through faith in Jesus. When they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, these prophecies show stop there, and they say, there are seven mountains in Rome, and that's the mountain, that's all. Just read the next line. It has nothing to do with that. He says, and they are what? Seven kings. That's what the heads represent. He says, there are seven kings. Five had fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself an eighth basically, an eighth kingdom, and is one of the seven. He's the seven, but he's so powerful, he's basically a kingdom in and of himself. And he goes to destruction. You have here the seven kingdoms spoken of, and Daniel talks about those. There are ones before Daniel. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, Greece. Five have fallen. And one is, that's Rome of this time when John is saying this. One is. And there's one to come, which would be that revised Rome. And so we have here the kingdoms that Satan has been sovereign over. He is described this way in Revelation chapter 12. 
the seven heads. He's the sovereign. He's the God of this world. And he's going to give all his authority to this beast. Let's get going here. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings, obviously, for one hour. Then, this is what we saw back in Daniel, these have one purpose, that they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him who are called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Remember that? The harlot is benefiting from the nations, committing spiritual adultery with them. That's what we saw earlier. And he says here, And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate. This beast makes a deal with Israel. They're doing fine. And in the middle of it, he starts to persecute her. And he uses these things to destroy her. Make her naked, eat her flesh, burn her up with fire. For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose, having a common purpose by giving your kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. You can go to chapter 11 of Revelation, I think it's verse 8. The great city is where our Lord was crucified. That's what it says. Okay, so we have this beast who is basically going to be the head of this final kingdom at this time. And now it makes sense with Daniel's 70th weeks. We have the abomination of desolation. Now, one last passage here. So back to Revelation 13, verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like a lion. Wow, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the book of Daniel, doesn't it? He's like all those kingdoms before in one. All the evil qualities, he is like those. That's the strength. And notice what it says. And his mouth, his mouth aligned. And the dragon gave him all his power, his throne, and great authority. That's this guy. That has not happened. You're not in the day of the Lord, Thessalonians. This guy has not raised himself up and declared himself to be God. You're not in the day of the Lord. This has to happen for that to happen. And that's what he's talking about. And later on, you can read through the rest of Revelation 13, talks about those who will receive the mark. It talks about the beast being allowed to persecute believers for this time, this last three and a half years, and they're going to be martyrs, they're going to die. It talks about the mark of the beast, All it's the mark of a man. It says it's the number of a man, right? And so I wanted to share with Daniel chapter 11, you can look at it in your own time. But let's go back to our passage in Second Thessalonians, for time's sake. As you're turning to our passage, the summary here is basically the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, the beast, has been given all of Satan's power. And that's what we're seeing back in our passage. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come. That's the day of the Lord, the day God pours out his wrath on this world, and Christ takes back what is rightfully his, unless the apostasy comes first, the complete turning away, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Revealed. Now, he's going to talk about what he is. Who opposes and exalts himself, verse 4, above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The earth is ripe for the greatest wickedness that's ever been. 
And there'll be three and a half years of that. And at the end, Christ will come. He will destroy his enemies. The beast, the false prophet, will be thrown in the lake of fire. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Christ will bring in his kingdom at that time. And so we have this Antichrist who is empowered by Satan because he has a little time left. And that's what those times are going to be like. Thessalonians, you're not going through that. They're lying to you. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't be so quickly shaken. You are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. See, we need to remember that. A lot to share, but I don't have time to share it. Next week we'll get into it. But the beast is going to be defeated. We saw it. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever, Daniel. He will come to an end and no one will help him. Revelation, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire, seized, and with the false prophet from sign, he'll be deceived those that he's still be thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, alive. They're not going to get away with it. And then in our passage, then this lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end his appearance with his coming. So there's a lot of bad stuff coming. The world is going to completely apostatize. It's going to go completely away. But there's something restraining that now. We'll see that next week. There's something that restrains this from happening, and that restraint needs to be taken out of the way, and that's coming. It's coming, and we'll see this in our next passage. I told you there's a lot here. A lot of information, but very basic point. The earth is going to hell. And apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, you're going there too. If you reject the gospel, if you're hardened, you're going to be deceived unto your own destruction. Fear God and give Him glory. That's when the gospel is going to go out even during that time. Fear God and give Him glory. Trust in Christ. But for us, God is gracious. Before this happens, we are delivered to be with Jesus. And we will be with Him forever. So what are we to do? We're to ever be thankful for our deliverance. And we're to look for our deliverer, like the Thessalonians were. We're not to be deceived and get caught up in the events of the world so that we get our eyes off Jesus Christ who will come to deliver us. We're not to be shaken or troubled, but we need to know the Word of God so that we stand firm until the end. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <music>